I have never cool. seen anything that complicated happen on Google before. <laughs> Hi, what's up? How you doing? I'm John Mejias in New York. And I'm Zach Smith in Los Angeles. And this is We Eat Art. A podcast where we talk to a real live visual artist about. about when I mix up the symbols, I'm really getting a feeling for how these things work together. And I love the idea of trying to find our common philosophical or religious story as humans. There's all these really, really simple ideas that all different philosophical and religious and even scientific things are pointing to. It's that kind of singularity that I'm really interested in. This episode, we're going to talk to Mike Giant about a funny game that I've had to play over my career, I guess, is competing with the machine. Even in my original drawings, it got to the point where you couldn't tell in a gallery if it was a print or an original or if it was a vector or if I hand drew it because it was just so flat and smooth. That's when I started to add pencil notes and my thumbprint to the originals to make it very, very clear this is an original drawing. I, I made this by hand. This isn't a print. You know, it's got like coffee on it or a little bit of blood in the corner of the paper. I had to deal with that. I can draw it just as smooth as a computer, but to what end? You kind of look like that head from um, The Exorcist. Yeah. No, just in this weird little back room at my lady's house. Well, I mean, I assume that, like, it's hard to get furniture and shelves and stuff, like, rooms when you're a giant. So <laughs> you just live in a cave, right? No, no. It's just dark in here. How did you get such big headphones? Are they made of like trash can lids? You know, some kid that came by my house used to work for Skull Candy and just gave them to me. He had a trunk full of headphones. I thought that was hot. And I was like, I'll take those. Excellent. I think all I asked him was which ones sounded the best. And yeah, I ended up with these like astronaut size fucking things on my head. He's got better headphones and a mic than, than we do. Well, and that's what funny. He has yeah. to have it all custom made because he's a giant. <laughs> Word. Excellent. We're here with Mike Giant. Thanks for having me. Now, you guys on the radio can't see this, but he's actually in complete darkness yeah. on Google Hangouts because he doesn't want to frighten us by showing how <laughs> shockingly out of scale he is to his environment. It's just the joke for two hours. All right. <laughs> actually, that's just a name. It is. I'm only 6'4". And you're in Colorado right now, Mike? Are you living there? Yeah, I live in Boulder. I've been here two and a half years. What made you decide to go there? I was looking for a place that had clean air, full seasons. I had some friends in Boulder that are still there, really old, good friends. I live on the edge of town. I don't have to go into town that often. I feel like that's a really subtle commentary on Boulder. Well, I, I guess I knew coming here that I, I wouldn't really fit in, but I have found a community of like-minded people to hang out with. But at the same time, I try to keep in mind that I've lived in some really cosmopolitan cities in the world, some of the biggest and most colorful places, you know, there are. So I have a range of experience to draw from. And yeah, it's no San Francisco or L.A. or New York, you know. Sometimes it's nice in those places because like everyone who's kind of interested in different things knows each other. So yeah. that's kind of cool. That part of it is cool for sure. Are you like a hiking, snowboarding, outdoorsy kind of guy? Or you just wanted a house? Not so much. 
I, I take advantage of all that stuff. I ride my bicycle every day, and this is a great place for that. I'll hop on my motorcycle and go up to the top of the mountain and walk around in the woods up there. Okay, motorcycling needs some space. Do you go on like long rides and stuff? Around? Once in a while. This is the first year that I've ridden at all. Oh, really? And the whole point was to ride with my father, and he lives in Albuquerque which is a good day's ride away. So I have done that ride back and forth once already now, but that's the longest distance that I've done. That seems like that would be beautiful. It's gorgeous. And the northern part of New Mexico is really varied. A lot of mountains. It's really green. As you get past Albuquerque, it's mostly like desert and really, really straight long highways as far as you can see. But in the north, it's a lot of winding roads and it's just gorgeous up there. I guess I hadn't really thought of this before we started talking, but like, your art, in terms of like what you leave out and what you put in, is extraordinarily American. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Even the, the drafting style, in a way, is, is something that you wouldn't have seen was derived from a kind of graphic style that developed mostly in the U.S., the, your yeah. precursors. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's an era that I look to, like late 1800s. You know, everything was still hand-drawn then. I think a lot of the stuff that I looked to was particularly American, too. Even now, when I go to used bookstores, I'm hunting for magazines from around that era, especially from the States, just because I feel like that was the best of the best before photography took over and new printing techniques took over. Are you looking for, like, old-time magazines or art magazines? What things yeah. catch you? Yeah, I'll walk right in and just ask, what kind of old magazines have you got? And a lot of times they've just got a box or something stashed away, and they're like, here you go. I will dig and dig and dig and dig until I find stuff. You know, sometimes I find nothing. But around here, like, especially Colorado and Utah, I found some really great stuff. It seems like people bought really interesting things back in the day and now they're ending up in the used bookstores and stuff and they're there for me it's great something about that era like right before photography there's also the kind of lines they had to use and the kind of line you use where it's human but it looks mechanized sure it's kind of like the line that computers would eventually create yes. but it was before they ever existed and it was about giving those kind of pictures and authority that right. this text had. There's like this text announcing something happened to Ulysses Grant or James Garfield. And then the image has to convey an authority, which of course a drawn image never has because you just made it up. But you say like, this is what the attacker looked like. And then I also saw that you don't use whiteout either. No, that's an important just part of the process. That idea of like conveying authority in this sort of clarity of drawing and that era. Yeah. That's a connection I never thought of before. Everything had to be drawn. As much as photography came in a little later, using lenses to capture images for artists to use has been happening since about the 1450s, from what I understand. Even the common practice of tracing the contours of a photograph as a starting point for artists. I mean, a lot of artists work that way and have for a long time. Even though, let's say, the French magazines that I have, uh, fashion stuff from the 1890s, it's all hand-drawn, but at first they're still working from photographs or of images of somebody in the studio even. So when you find a picture from digging through the stacks, 
What are kind of things that you're looking for that you know that you can't get just by Googling pictures? Well, a big part of what I'm doing is trying to create a library of what I consider classics for whatever reason as kind of my legacy after I'm dead. I'm hoping people will go through or somebody will and put it all together and you'll see that kind of connection. And the classics from my perspective, go back to say the 1850s all the way up to right now. So you might have Snoopy next to a lady in a Victorian dress next to a Ferrari. You know what I mean? But in the end, if you look at it as a body of work, it'll really tell the story, hopefully, of humanity. And I think in particular, America, like you were kind of saying earlier, like I do identify with America. I've lived in foreign countries enough to know that I'm really an American for better or worse. I have American even written across my knuckles. <laughs> I'm into that whole thing, you know? And again, it's a better or worse thing. It's all good to me. I noticed on Instagram, you even have a gun and you're, you're shooting guns. That's pretty sure. American. <laughs> that's just you. it. That's, that's one of our freedoms. I was taught how to use weapons properly as a kid. I think my father got me shooting at around 10 years old. He just started teaching my nephews how to shoot. It was just something about home protection. Our house got broken into quite a few times when I was a kid while we were away. And uh, both of my parents had to work. So they were concerned, first and foremost, about safety. And even set the weapons up in a way that I wouldn't be killing people, but I would be putting them down so that the police could come give me some time. But there were even times when I've had to pull it as a kid just to keep people from stop coming by this, the house. Like the Jehovah's Witnesses kept coming by and uh, <laughs> mentioned to him, you know, at dinner just casually, oh yeah, the Jehovah's Witnesses came by today. And he was like, oh yeah, do they come by a lot? And I'm like, oh, about once a week. I see them pretty regularly. And he was like, do they come in the house? And I said, oh yeah, you know, they're, they're Jehovah's Witnesses. They're from the church. You know, we're Christian people. And he was like, hell no. First of all, nobody ever, 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 nobody comes in the house ever straight up. Secondly, the next time those people come to the door, I want you to have the 38 in your hand. I want you to politely tell them, my dad would rather you not come by anymore. And that's exactly what I did. And they were like, that's perfectly fine, Michael. See you later. And I never saw him again. And that was all good. You know, I grew up in Albuquerque too. Like I saw a lot of sketchy stuff. And frankly, the only times I've seen my father pull out a pistol in public is to uh, quell a sketchy situation. And he always did. He was the voice of reason and was like, you guys need to stop what you're doing and go separate ways right now before this gets terrible. I've seen him do it. So my way of understanding guns and whatnot might not be the usual, you know what I mean? But it's mine. So sure. now as an adult, I would rather know how to use those things properly and to be able to protect myself in those cases. I just think that's a part of being a responsible American. I mean, it, it doesn't mean that I'm all into it and shit, but it's, it's part of what's, what's here. And I think it's kind of irresponsible to not understand that. It's like folks that have never shot a gun, like, that's cool. That's fine. But I think that if you at least knew how to use it, if there was a sketchy situation, and again, you could be that voice of reason and pull the weapon and make a situation stop, that's great, you know? And just because you didn't know how to do it, that's a bummer to me. It highlights a thing which is like, the US is so big that you can grow up and have a completely different sense of what a gun is and does. You're essentially living in a different country. That's how neighborhoods are. <laughs> yeah. I know people who like, 
they've seen guns all their lives and never seen a dead body. And I know mm. people in the city, like me, who have seen dead bodies on the street in their neighborhood, but never seen a gun. Right. What you do with them and how they work is like, you might as well be living in a different country in a lot of ways, and people have like completely different ethics. Like what they expect out of life. You know, it's like, what, yeah. what's life gonna throw at me? And they're like, well, I, I might be asked to have to drive a car. I might have to fix a car. I might have to be able to wire this to that, but I'm never gonna have to deal with that. And they live their whole life and die and they're right. And then other people, yeah. they're wrong. I'm interested in what you said before because the same thing happened to me, which is like, when I went to Europe, I realized I was really, really, really American in ways that I didn't even know. Right. What were the things that you realized when you went abroad? I love the food here, the variation of food. I love too that we're nationalistic, but not in the same way that I've experienced in Europe and Asia. It's, it's like America is the melting pot of all the different nations. So inherently, to me, to be a nationalist or you know, condescending of another nation is strange to me because they're all my neighbors. Whereas in Europe, it kind of makes a little bit of sense. Like I lived in Amsterdam in 2008 and occasionally I'd have to ride in cabs and usually they were driven by these old Dutch dudes. And more than once, they said that they were sad that there weren't any more Dutch girls. And I was like, what the heck does that mean? You know, and he's just like, they want to mix with everybody and be a European citizen, the EU thing. It's like a, a backlash against that. And from my perspective, it was like, well, yeah, we're all one people. We're all one nation. Everybody should be mixing it up and having fun. And who cares about all these differences? But to an older generation, like they fought over those differences and those were like heavy things, you know, but I've never really understood it. So on some level, coming back to the States, it's just like, I'm not dealing with a lot of that. It's, it's different here, but just as much as I've found there's beefs between us, regardless of where we're at. You know what I mean? Like when I lived in London, there was a big beef between South London and North London even in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where I grew up, you know, West side is very different than East side. And it's just ridiculous to me. But on some level, at the end of the day, the people I surround myself with here in the States are multicultural, coming from all different places, all different backgrounds. And I think that's super dope. And I think that that's a, a thing for the future that I love, you know, and I hope it stays that way. We'll see. I mean, you make really American art. But mm. like, I think, for example, the way the French like have like a committee to protect French culture, keep English words out yeah, of the, you them. know, <laughs> they actually have like when the, a new English word starts filtering in, they invent a French word with a committee so that it will stay French. And I think part of that is that they're all bordering each other and very close and you can move from one to the other. And like they're worried that their country will cease to be the things they like about it if they aren't right. very careful about it. Whereas... We've right. had the problem and the luxury of not really being very aware of Canada and Mexico as places sure. that you could go at a heartbeat for the average yeah. American. And yet yeah. you're making very American art. It's American in the sense that everything from Alaska down to Mexico City is kind of included in your work. Well, sure. It's not American United States. It's American like this landscape. 
Well, and I would even expand that further. I mean, like even in the tattoo tradition, they were looking at dragons from Japan and interpreting them their own way. And in that way, America is a place of immigrants. You know, our ancestors all came from different places. And I think they came from all over the world. I think to me, the American perspective is how that gets interpreted. It's like Japan is awesome about seeing things from around the world, reinterpreting them in their own way, which we can recognize from all over the world as a very Japanese way of interpreting that. And I think that's super dope. Yeah, I think it's evolving and changing. We'll, we'll see if it, those kinds of national differences live on or if we do really become this kind of one world where those things become less and less important. I'm curious to see it. It seems like I'll, I'll see it in my lifetime because things are changing so quickly. It's also interesting. Your art tends to take a vast variety of symbols, but visually make them fit together. So like this could be sure. from one era in one place, and this could be another, but they, you kind of flatten them down so that they both become part of one fabric. Yeah, and that's, again, how I kind of experience things. You know, even to use an example of when I was just in New York walking through Williamsburg, there was new things and old things. There was Russian Orthodox churches next to liquor stores, next to brand new fancy taco shops and stuff. And I love that that's all one thing, basically, but it's from different eras, from different cultures, from different ideas, different backgrounds, and it all just kind of makes this experience like people who don't have any tattoos and they're like thinking about getting one are always like, oh, I don't know what to get. And it's such a big cho choice. And I'm like, if you don't like it, just get like a hundred more. And then it doesn't even matter what you got. You just have <laughs> tattoos. You just have like a bunch of them. Sure. And it, it well, ceases yeah. to matter each individual one. No, I, I tell people that the tattoo is going to end up marking a time in your life. And it's going to bring back memories of that time. Maybe just get something that's really good. <laughs> right. That from a really good guy or, you know, or girl or, you know, whoever. But the specifics of it are going to kind of change over time, how you feel about it, that kind of thing. And, you know, there's always cover ups and lasers. Right. It, but it also seems like <laughs> part of what you do is sort of squeeze the time and the specificity out of the symbols. Yeah. Yeah. The markers that they come from different times and cultures are squeezed out so they just become the thing in a sense. Yeah, that's my whole point. I was looking at Egyptian hieroglyphics and I was just looking at them as pictures, as symbols of that time and maybe what they were concerned with. But I'm seeing them without any knowledge of their language. They're just these little pictures. You know, I was just at the Met last week looking through the Egyptian stuff and just kind of like, how hard would it be to figure out what this stuff means? Because it really just looks like, oh, there's a little ibis next to a little ibis next to a little river picture. Oh, God, like I know there's tons in there. So I started to then look at the world around me and started to think, well, what's going to be, say, the visual garbage that's left behind from our generation? And it's those things, corporate logos next to fine art stuff and old, even new tattoo imagery. To me, that's all I'm trying to do. Again, with that idea of classics, like Snoopy's classic, Mickey Mouse's classic, uh, Brass Knuckles are classic, <laughs> you know? Being the, uh, being the social media stalker that I am, I noticed that you went to some of the modern museums and didn't seem to like them too much. It depends on the, which one. You know, like the new museum was a real yeah. drag. 
the, even the way that it worked, like how you moved around it and stuff, and you had to walk through the cafe to get to the first gallery, it was just like, this sucks, you know? <laughs> but then I went to the Whitney, and I had a great time. That was awesome. I saw so much cool stuff there. The new so it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it really, really depends. That's just it. Like, I have faith in modern art. I'm cool with it. Again, I'm a craft person. I take great care in everything that I do with my hands. If art doesn't have that craft in it, it's got to really do something to push my buttons in a different way and keep my interest. And some modern art does that, for sure. I mean, I'm not above conceptual things where it's, you know, I got to sit there and figure out what the fuck are they getting at with this? You know, maybe it's just this emotional response that I'm having where I'm getting a little pissed. You know, that's valid. That's fine. If the next gallery is full of, say, Tom of Finland drawings or something, I'm going to spend a lot more time in there just because I feel like he was a technical master, you know, regardless of the subject matter. Sure. You started working before you would ever really be able to even come close to what you're doing with the machine reliably. As a craftsman, do you ever go, at what point am I John Henrying? At what point am I taking an image, reducing it to like a sort of line style? And mm -hmm. like, how close is this to like machines doing that art? Because I mean, I'm oh, only sure. asking you because yeah. that has happened to me as I'll look at certain Photoshop oh, sure. filters and I'll be like, you know, with like a little bit of tweaks at about 500 feet, that looks like a Zach Smith. Like you yeah. fuck up with the color. Sure. I mean, and you take so much pride in a craft that is in many ways about creating this authority that's almost machine-like. Yeah. Well, that's been a, a funny game that I've had to play over my career, I guess, is competing with the machine. Even in my original drawings, it got to the point where you couldn't tell in a gallery if it was a print or an original or if it was a vector or if I hand drew it because it was just so flat and smooth. That's when I started to add pencil notes and my thumbprint to the originals to make it very, very clear. This is an original drawing. I, I made this by hand. and This isn't a print for sure. It's got like coffee on it or a little bit of blood in the corner of the paper. I had to deal with that. Like at a certain point, I can draw it just as smooth as, as a computer, but to what end? That's why I can respect friends like my buddy Wes Lang. He's a fine artist. He lives in LA. He can draw incredibly precisely, but he chooses to draw loose and has fun with it and has a much more open approach than I do. And I can really, really appreciate that once you've gone through the technical stuff and gone past that. I feel like I'm kind of stuck at a way that I do things. But at the same time, I'm happy just drawing the way I draw all day, every day. What is the emotion of feeling happy being stuck? What does that mean to you? There's other things that I'm interested in and there's other mediums that I'm interested in. And I have bigger ideas that I can't express through drawing. But... Given the time in the studio, I'm going to gravitate towards sitting down with the Sharpies. It's just a guaranteed good time. So it's know? like breathing to you. It's just like that's what you uh, do. It's do you the most relaxing part of the day. Do you still do graffiti? Very rarely. You know, that's a real circumstantial thing if I'm in a foreign country or something. But, you know, I was just having a talk with a friend in New York about graffiti. And we're both in our mid-40s. And it's just like... When we look at the graffiti game and, you know, where you start and what you're trying to achieve out of that whole 
system, we did it. We achieved worldwide fame. We have recognizable styles. You know, it doesn't matter what we write. Even the icing on the cake, we have like distinctive character styles and even things above and beyond just style as far as the letters go. At this point, you know, it's done. We won. It's it's all good. You know, we're in the winner's circle. But at this point, to continue, it's just like, oh, so what? One of the things about graffiti is that there are two sides to it. One is the side where you just aestheticize it. You're looking at how a piece of art hits a piece of architecture. Yeah. And then the other side of it is athletic and about marketing. And it's like getting up in places so that people recognize you. It sounds like what you're saying is the second part of the game was the important part to you. And once you win, you don't need to worry about that first part. Like you don't worry about what a Mike Giant piece would look like on this wall or that billboard anymore. Yeah. It doesn't matter yeah, to yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. Not so much. I mean, I still look at the world that way through the eyes of a graffiti writer. Same as like my skateboarding eyes. Everything's grindable or slidable or you can jump off that and land over there and for sure. But the, the compulsion to go do it, mm, no, not, not so much. Is it physical thing or is it just like you said what you had to say? I think it's just uh, said what I had to say. The excitement in it is a bit lost. I've been chased by cops so many times I, re I really couldn't possibly remember. There'd be no way. And a lot of people, you know, when they hear freeze, they freeze. So I, I've done all that. It's it's all good. I don't need to keep doing that at 45. <laughs> you know, I, I find my, my thrills in other things. And I like teaching people, too. Teaching writers how to develop their styles or how to make markers or stuff like that. So is that mostly, like, videos and articles? How do you do it? Oh, it's all old school. Like, I, I'd show them. <laughs> they got to be physically with me with a can in their hand. And I'm like, oh, here, take this tip, turn it like this, turn it sideways and go like that. And they go, oh, So it's shit. like people you know. Well, just people, just people I meet. If I'm just out, it really depends. And even among veteran friends that I'm painting with, sometimes they'll be like, what did you just do there, dude? And I'm like, you don't know about that? Oh, I just turned the cap like this and kind of moved my body up and over. And it makes this whoosh, you know, and they're like, oh, shit, that's fresh. And I'm like, fuck, I learned that in 92, bro. Everybody's got a different way of using it. You know, in the art world, you get a good art dealer or, you know, if you're acting, you get a good agent and they, they help you. Like, what do you do to get graffiti fame? It's, it's hip hop, man. You got to show and prove. That's what it all is. It doesn't matter where you come from, you know, how much money you got, what kind of family you came from. It's just about doing it. You got to make a name for yourself. And in the graffiti game, that's all pretty laid out. Tags to throw ups, to simple styles, to the nice pieces, to the stuff you can't read. You know, you got to do it all. You got to be the best with the most. But the way that it gets publicized has like probably changed over the last 15 years in a couple different stages, right? Like there's well, just like people yeah. seeing stuff around city. Then there's the era of like, oh, we're doing books now. We're yeah. gonna put you in the book. And then there's the well, internet. Like, has that changed? And then the magazine era. That's just it. There's a lot of things around the act of graffiti writing that have changed. The ability to share your work, the ability to learn, the ability to get your hands on awesome paint right off the start with amazing variation and spray cap, you know, stuff. Yeah, but in the end, you still gotta go out in the middle of the night and write your name on everything and evade the police and other writers and gang members and regular people with shotguns in their trucks. And it's serious. There's, there's no getting around 
that. If you're really going to be a graffiti writer, you still got to prove yourself that way. There's just no getting around it. So as much as, like we're saying, things change, it, it doesn't. I do wonder about taking photos because like a lot of people, well, everybody now has a phone. They yeah. don't go anywhere without recording it. Sure. Was that always what you did? Absolutely. So you never had anybody go out without a phone? That's the only physical evidence that you have. You got to remember, most of the graffiti I've done in my entire lifetime lasted until the next day. So it was imperative that I got there at dawn to get what we call daytime flicks. Because usually you would try to get photos at night with a flash, but they were always shit when the paint's wet. Who saw the photos in the beginning? Did anybody? We shared them with each other. I would do mail photo exchanges. You know, I'd go to Costco and get 10 sets of everything on this one roll. You know, let's say, and they'd be like, really? I'm like, yeah, 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 trust me. I really want 10 sets. And then I would send a set to each one of my pen pals or whatever. And then I would get photos. And I was doing that with people all over the world, pre-internet. <laughs> yeah, that's one of, something people coming up now don't know about, which is like no. back when it was all through the mail. Yeah, you had to have at least some sort of personal connection. Can you talk about how you develop that network of just people with snail mail? Walk us through it a little bit. Just like you'd think, it's just one person to the next. If I happened to meet somebody that was in town from another place, I would get their address. I remember getting the address of a graffiti writer I met in London when I was living there in 1990, and I still correspond with that dude. Now we do it on Instagram and whatnot, but we used to send each other film photographs in these little stacks. That was the only way to get that stuff. Eventually, like Xerox uh, zines started coming around and even full color magazines from different countries started popping up. Until then, you had to get it by hand. It was the same with the punk rock scene. Mm. You had to get those flyers by hand. They weren't around. If you wanted zines, nobody sold those zines. You had to get them at the shows. I think that that was cool. Even I've been working in streetwear forever, but when I was a kid, the first places I wanted to go to were like the skateboard shops in California to get their t-shirts because you couldn't get that. I mean, if I was a kid in Albuquerque wearing a shirt that had an address in California, everybody knew I went there or my dad went there and was cool enough to pick one up for me. But that was the only way you were going to get that stuff. Eventually it started to come around and Thrasher would have mail-in stuff. And I can remember my mother sending personal checks to Dogtown and the guy that owns Dogtown would call the house and ask for my mom to make sure that the check was legit, you know? <laughs> and she'd have to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, he ordered the suicidal hat. Yeah, and the, the web sweater. Yep, yep, he got that too. Yeah, and, and the web deck too. Yep, that's exactly what you're, yep, send it out. He'll be excited. Thank you so much. And the guy's like, all right, lady, you know, it's going out today. <laughs> that was the old days. They would just call, you know? <laughs> Do you remember the first time there was a magazine or a zine that was like just graffiti. Yeah, because I think it was when I finally met uh, this guy, Agree. He moved to Albuquerque from uh, Brooklyn, I think around 89 or 90. And so the first time I hung out with him, he just unloaded this pile of graffiti media on me. And I was like, what the fuck? I had no idea there was any of it. Magazines and just all kinds of stuff. He had this thing called IGT, I think it was like International Graffiti Times. This yeah. dude, Phase 2, I think, made it. But it was like really ahead of its time. It got really into the politics of graffiti writing and to call it graffiti writing. Or like they just wanted to call it writing because yeah. they didn't even like the connection to the word graffiti. 
you know, which I get to. I'd much rather it be that way. At the same time, yeah, I, I think it was right around 1990. And then I was hooked. Then I started making my own zine called Albuquerque Aerosol. that was just Xeroxed using photographs that I took. And I would send a few copies of those to the people that I was trading photographs with. And then they started doing the same thing. It just ex- kept expanding and expanding. Then when like things like Tower Records came around, then all of a sudden there was this avenue. There were these people that would buy a whole bunch of issues at once. So you knew you could spend a little bit of money. And then the same people that were doing the zines then started making the magazines. And even now, some of my friends that work in uh, publishing that are doing really well started out way back then just collecting zines and stuff. I mean, when I was saying like things have changed, like that was the thing I was kind of interested in. Because like describing like the path in the 80s, graffiti was not a path. For anybody except no. Keith Haring. <laughs> and then sure. eventually, during the 90s and early zeros, it became clear that you actually had a path to like having another job through it, yeah. which was a change that a lot of people probably don't respect or understand that was created by sure. people not just doing the writing, but then deciding that they were going to go out and show people that the writing had gotten done. Yeah. Because people only knew it was in their town. Yeah. It's a different playing field now for sure. Now a young person is told you probably should do work on the street to build a name for yourself and then come back to the gallery and we might have a better chance of selling your work and promoting you. It was the opposite from us where we really kept our graffiti stuff on the down low, you know, even though half the audience there was graffiti writers that all knew the deal. You know what I mean? Yeah, I knew an artist here. He came to L.A. from Europe. And he had done a bunch of street stuff in Europe. He is having a gallery show, like a regular gallery show. These were paintings, mm-hmm. like oil paintings. And he had done street cool. art. But, and his dealer was like, we really want you to do a piece. Like his dealer had a ladder and a van all ready to go in like this spot that he wanted him to like, <laughs> do like a, a totally illegal piece. Yeah. His dealer was like planning it out. Yeah, that's weird. But I get it. I get it. I would have been nice. You know, like he did it. I, I wouldn't have complained. Sure. The, the relationship has changed sure. for that tier of the art world in an interesting way. Sure. That would not be like that 15 years ago. 20, no way. No, no, no. That's just it. Like you're saying, graffiti writing is a dead end, you know, but now it's kind of a means to an end. It's really strange how it's worked out that way, for sure. But at the same time, I feel like people really understand the risks that we took and what we did and respect that a lot. And now we're OGs. Yeah. The kids look up to us. They know we've gotten into it with the cops a lot and just the temperament of young people now i can't imagine them running from police or or hitting a cop to get away or it's a trippy thing whereas i felt like i was surrounded by people that were that way it might have been albuquerque (laughs) it's a different time and again i think it's better in in a lot a lot of ways for sure i mean it's a lot safer (laughs) that's cool I lived with a graffiti writer for, for a short time. And just all him and all of his friends, they were all just very alpha. They were just alpha guys. And I remember thinking, yes. I'm, not, I'm not alpha enough to be a graffiti writer. <laughs> it, just, it teaches you to be an alpha. That's the yeah. whole thing. I have this theory where as a graffiti writer, all I'm doing is uh, practicing my hunting instinct. I've never had to hunt in my whole life. But mm-hmm. if I look at what I did as a graffiti writer, I was a hunter. I would find what I wanted to kill. I'd stake it out. I'd figure out its habits. 
right? And then I'd come back at night with my weapons and I'd kill it. And then it was imperative that I got the photo to show that I actually did what I said I did, right? That's the whole thing. So I've been doing that for years and years and years, you know, and I was even a vegetarian for 22 years. And maybe I was redirecting some of that energy into this, this hunting. Any kind of play is always has an element of that. Sure. Yeah. They study like these monkeys that live on an island out in the South Pacific and like basically they have almost no natural predators. Uh, basically they just eat fruit all day. That's right, their real right. life. But when sure. they play, they play one game, which is I'm trying to kill you. Sure. Scientists will watch them play and they sneak up on each other and then they grab each other and then they roll around and then they're like, okay, sure. we're done playing. And I have like a Shih Tzu. He's never had a, a day without food in his life. Like he's never had a day yeah. without comfort in his whole life. But right. his playing is just trying to kill things. Yeah, I mean, that's the funny thing with dog toys. They squeak just like an animal squeaks when it's getting thrown around when it's alive. I mean, it's funny. Like, yeah, these are ancient things that are in us. I mean, so much has changed just in the last 200 years. But as a species, we've been evolving for what, hundreds of thousands. Yeah, yeah, all that stuff is in there. And, and I'm curious about how that stuff articulates itself in contemporary culture, because it is it's a radically different time for our species. I was thinking about in the classic symbols you've got, you got skulls a lot, sure. right? And oh, I yeah. was thinking about how to us, a skull is subcultural in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Sure. It means, you know, Cypress Hill, Grateful Dead, skulls are cool, yeah. like anything. Sure. But sure. <laughs> it's such a powerful thing all the time because I think for yeah. 300,000 years, you would never see a skull ever unless it meant the person you were talking to had killed someone and put their skull out there to sure. tell you they were a scary sure. person. Or you just find a, a skeleton somewhere, like you'd yeah. find a deer in the woods or whatever. But you're definitely like expressing like a thing died and we're holding on to it. Oh, and it's heavy. There, I mean, I have a real human skull and when I hold it, there is, you know, there, there's something there. I feel different when it's in my hands. You Where'd know? you get it from? I won't say, but okay. um, <laughs> but yeah, regardless, it has some pretty powerful significance. I really respect that and check in on that sometime. I mean, a big part of with a Buddhist practice is like a daily thing about death. If you die today, are you good? Is everything taken care of? Is there anything you need to say to anybody? Is there anybody you can help today? If not, then you're golden. Go about your day and enjoy it moment to moment. I'm interested in the idea of like being in touch with what symbols mean and having this library of classic imagery. But at the same time, it seems like your hands are really interested in the empty symbol. Like sure. the work is about... It's implied meaning, right? Every star is a solar system with planets, yeah. but when we look, we just see stars. Sure. And it's almost like you're trying to turn a world of meanings and symbols into just this pattern. That's just it, it can look that way. But again, if you're, let's say, if it's a religious symbol that's about a particular uh, emotional state or whatever that you're trying to achieve and you achieve that, all of a sudden then the, the symbol takes on a personal meaning. It, it's a feeling, it's a real thing. And I think that that's where when I mix up the symbols, I'm really getting a feeling for how these things work together. 
And I love the idea of trying to find our common philosophical or religious story as humans. You know, I feel like there's all these really, really simple ideas that all different philosophical and religious and even scientific things are pointing to. It's that kind of singularity that I'm really interested in. And I feel like through the Buddhist way of meditating and going inward and understanding things in that way, it's made all the other religious, philosophical and scientific um, modes make a lot more sense to me because at least I have some sort of foundation. It's like I'm really into Freemason stuff. They talk so much about that there's this person metaphorically that's not your ego that's connected to the universe. And it it all sounds really highfalutin and it's really hard to understand. But once I did meditation retreats where I was doing sitting practice kind of day in and day out, and I did get to a place where I wasn't attached to my thinking mind whatsoever, really had no sense of an ego, kind of like in a psychedelic state. And I think that once I came back and I reread that Freemason stuff, then it was like, aha, now I have a physical reference point for what they're pointing at. But you can't just say it because it's beyond words. It's beyond thinking. So there's all this really complicated stories and visualizations about these things that are really experiences. And if you miss the experience, I feel like you're kind of missing the whole thing. It's like if you're sitting there as a Christian person and you're praying and your heart's not opening up and you're not bursting into tears on occasion, I don't really think you're doing it right. There there, there needs to be a, a personal investing. Tibetan Buddhists, when they draw deities, like on my back, I have a guy named Mahakala and he looks really mean. He's like a demon and he's like, wow, crazy. And he's floating in blood. And, and it's not to say that that's really how they see the God. It's more that that's how you need to understand the energy that goes into this meditation world. So uh, get, see, that's the thing. It gets all wrapped up. It, like the, it, It's really hard to explain. Because again, it's just something that I, it's just something I, I, experience and then it just seems just something that you really need to have in your life yeah it's it's like when i'm on retreat and i don't have a watch i'm not dealing with money no keys uh there's no real set schedule meals are taken care of all distractions are removed after i've done that for about a week i realize is this how human existence is supposed to be man this is dope but then I have to come back into regular life. But I still have this frame of this place and this experience where everything was fucking awesome. That's the place I go back to when I sit now in meditation in my studio. It feels like I'm back on the mountain again and all is one because I have that as a physical thing that I can go back to. You know what I mean? And that's what makes the symbols and things start to really shine and make sense and to see the interplay of the symbols because it's these things that I'm experiencing. It's like it's one thing to say, to talk about death, but to have your hands on a dead body is a whole different thing. And what you feel and what you know and what you learn from that experience is beyond words. But I think it's extremely important, too. And I think it's another one of those terrible things about modern society is that we're not around birth and we're not around death. 
both of those things happen in these really kind of sanitized separate places. Mm -hmm. Like for, for myself, I don't feel macabre about my experiences with dead people. Those were incredible learning opportunities to understand how things are and to know that, yeah, this thing really just clicks out when it's done. Like anytime I've had my hands on a, a recently deceased person, it's very, very clear to me that the personality was a construct of their mind. Once that light is out, it's a meat sack. It's the weirdest feeling. And it's terrible too, because you're like, well, where did that personality go? And I think that's where ideas, different kinds of ideas about reincarnation come from and about the soul. You live on forever in heaven and all this stuff because you just don't want to face the fact that when the lights go out and that heart stops, the personality is gone. It was all imaginary to begin with. And that's another thing about Buddhist practice. They're really trying to get you in touch with those kinds of big picture things. But it's one thing to talk about death and blah, blah, blah to retreat. But for those of us who've really been there and have had our hands on bodies, you get that. And then the symbolism of death and whatnot and how people have represented it, you kind of get where they're coming from because obviously they've had the same physical experience. Whether something is full, full of ideas, full of symbols, full of meanings, or whether it's empty and it's all sort of part of a unity that's one thing, is a choice yeah. of the viewer yes. looking at your work. That's money. It can literally be <laughs> a pattern of symbols, like when we're looking at the Egyptian symbols and we just see we just see Egypt, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You look at one of your pieces and you could just see America, like American, like snakes sure. and cobras and, and pinups. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Or you can flip the goggles and see it as full yeah. and see it as symbols that have yeah. a meaning and they have like a layering of things that you could connect the dots. And what you're describing seems to relate to that, seeing personality of a person as a vain construct Mm -hmm. that pretends to mean something versus seeing it as a unity that was never separated from anyone else is a choice and that sometimes you make both choices. Yeah, well, that's one of those Buddhist things too where all is one. But there is the Buddhist art that echoes what we think of when we think of it that seems to be about unity and simplicity. And yet then there's sure. also like the Tibetan Buddhist art, like the tulpas and stuff, which are immensely sure. complex and colorful and they almost like comics. They're particular. And that, yeah. the, the particularity yeah. versus the universality. You know, those, those pictures are meant to inspire certain things. Like the teacher will say, today I would like you to meditate on inevitable death. And this will be the deity that will help you through this you know, on your way. So you just sit there and you meditate with your eyes open and you get close enough so that your peripheral vision, there's nothing there. So you're really soaked into those Tonka paintings and you just sit and you stare at that sucker and it gets weird. And they do have history of hallucinogen use. It shouldn't be denied. I mean, I feel like in contemporary culture, the uh, possibilities of hallucinogen use for uh, curing PTSD, addictions and whatnot is really interesting. And I think it's also good to start to bring that into the the public uh, consciousness and the conversation again, because it's part of our ancient history on a huge, huge level in all the stuff that I've dug into just in religion, philosophy, science. A lot of people were turned on when they had some pretty radical breakthroughs. And even us as a human species and evolving from, let's say, the bonobos, our nearest 
relatives that could have possibly been, you know, what we were eating. Could have helped get our mind working differently. Would you recommend everyone try LSD? Oh, sure. I mean, it's, it's like a virginity thing. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the answer yes. is yes. <laughs> Absolutely. I think it's incredibly informative to show yourself how much your perception of everything can be changed with this minuscule amount of a substance. I think it really throws up in the air, what is perception? Like, what was I just seeing? Was that real? Was that in my mind? How am I seeing the world? It's all being interpreted. Because when you're high on LSD and you see trails or things are breathing, you're like, am I really seeing this? I mean, obviously, this isn't actually happening in real time, but I'm sure experiencing it like it is. And I just think that that's really a good thing. Again, if, you're, if I'm on this path of trying to become egoless, uh, hallucinogens can be a great way to show that. There's a word I use called crossover, where... I can't tell if my eyes are open or closed in the hallucinogenic state. And in that place, who are you? Where are you? What's time? What's distance? That's when people can have really bad trips, when they can't just relax into the egoless state. If you can relax into it, it's fun. It's like riding a roller coaster through space. But again, I think that through doing that, there's tremendous potential for learning. I mean, look at our ancestral history, Aboriginal history, the use of hallucinogens for a variety of reasons has been prolific across the whole planet. I'm just glad it's coming back into the popular discussion because I think it's really, really, really important. And I think it's a great tool. And I think there's different hallucinogens for different kinds of things and for different kinds of people. You know, I mean, even marijuana can be a mild form of hallucinogen, especially in its edible form. And I smoke marijuana all day, every day. I'm really comfortable with that somewhat altered state, you might say. Now I won't do LSD or shrooms or that kind of thing because I've done it hundreds of times. And I think I've learned what I needed to from that experience. People often come to me and are like, hey, would you be down to do ayahuasca? I know you've never done that. And I'm like, well, n no. I think I've done what I need to in that realm. I get it. And that's what led me to Buddhism, frankly. I feel like we need to ask every artist on the podcast whether they recommend guns and LSD as two separate <laughs> questions because I feel like they're yeah, revealing questions. Now. We got to stop asking what their parents think. I do want to ask a, in a related question about you've ever had a second look at one of your pieces in any medium, like a, a tattoo, any mm. painting graffiti, anything, you've let it go into the world, you forget you made it, it comes back. The second time you see it, it means or does something different than when you sent it out. Oh, of course. That happens all the time, because the context like, changes. Can you give us an example of something that, that's specific in your mind? Oh, uh, uh, of a drawing I, where I used an old girlfriend as the photo reference. Yeah. Like, yeah, when those things pop back up, it's like, oh, her, huh. You know, and then it's like, well, how do I feel about her now? And it's also kind of reassuring in some way, too, when I something from way back in the day comes back up and I look at it and I go, huh, I probably would have dealt with that subject exactly the same way today. And what do you know? I was doing that little eyelash thing back then. All right. All right. But it does change. And through my 
personal experiences, the symbols start to take on different meaning. I'll see that I used a symbol that I wasn't as uh, personally invested in that I used back in the day. But now I'm like, oh, yeah, see, I was using that back then and I didn't really know what that was about. And now I feel like I really do. And it's like fresh. I was already using that. Cool. You know, I mean, there's not really stuff that I'm, say, embarrassed of or anything like that. But the meaning in them certainly does change and the importance too. Because sometimes, again, like a tattoo, they mark a certain time. It was just an important time, and it happened to be the drawing that I did at that time. And it's like, oh, wow, there's actually a lot of subtext going on in that drawing because of what was going on in my life at that time that I can see a lot more clearly now. So you were born in Albuquerque? No, I was born in Brockport, New York, upstate in 71. We stayed there until 79, did a road trip. We were headed to Phoenix, actually. And got to Albuquerque, and my parents fell in love with it. And we're like, fuck Phoenix. This is where we should move. So we drove all the way back to upstate New York. And slowly but surely, we all, as a family, moved out one at a time. What kind of people were they? Like, what did they do? My folks? Yeah. My dad's a barber. He's retired now. He's always worked as a barber since he got out of Vietnam. My mother works in human resources. She's retired now. She worked for a company that did alumni directories, and they were one of the first businesses to move to New Mexico because it was a phone business. Much like the internet now, you can start like a Google headquarters. They're everywhere now. It doesn't really matter. So my mom was actually way ahead on the curve with technology and stuff. I remember when the fax machine came, the modem thing. We had the first Apple computer at home just because mom was hip to that shit. Hmm. You know what I mean? But then it was in 93 that I moved to San Francisco to do uh, graphics for Think Skateboards. I did that for four years. When was the first time you started getting into like creative stuff? Like where you was, was uh, drawing your first thing? Was yeah. Like- as my parents described it, as soon as I could hold something that made a mark, I was on it. And they just continued to put it in there. Was graffiti like the first thing you did that was like that other people or are you painting first or in school? Like, uh, I was you- drawing. I was all, I've always been using markers. That's why I still use Sharpies, Right. you know? And oddly, I can see now that I just make coloring books all day, but I don't color them in. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, yeah. And I'm colorblind. Um, so I, I have a limited palette. So I kind of gravitate towards black and white. You do the colors on your own tattoos, though, right? Uh, sure, yeah. But again, it's a, it's, a, you know, it's a limited palette. All this stuff that I've worked in needed to be high contrast, punchy, kind of graphic things. That's what I've leaned towards. So it's always worked out okay. You know, there's only been uh, literally, I think, two or three occasions where I used uh, the wrong color in a tattoo because I couldn't really tell the difference between, let's say, a super, super deep purple and a black. Yeah. You know, and in all those cases, I was able to fix it up. It wasn't a big deal. If somebody came in with a painting and wanted me to reproduce it, there's absolutely no way that I could do that for sure. There's just a lot of work that I just said no to. And even if a customer wanted a particular blue, let's say, I would have to tell them, all right, we're going to mix it up in the cup until it's a little bit darker than what you want it to look in your skin. But you're going to have to tell me when it looks right. When you moved to SF to do graphics, what other art had you done by then? You know, I'd done some t-shirt graphics for the local skate shop and whatnot, and I'm trying to think what other kinds of stuff I was doing. I was sketching in my black books, you know, my graffiti books a lot. I lied a little bit about uh, my qualifications to get the job at Think, but I learned all that stuff the first day, and then it was on, you know? So once you got up there, you had like a full-time job doing graphics 
That was, was that your first job? Well, I had lots of other jobs. I worked at McDonald's was my first job. I worked right, at yeah. Sizzler, Taco cafeterias. Bell. I worked at skate shops. But yeah, that was the first like sit down office job and certainly art job. It was killer. <laughs> you know, I did that for four years until I just got sick of it. When did you start? 93. October oh, okay. 1st of 93 is when I started. You said you'd seen the graffiti magazines, like the all magazine, like 80, 89. Yeah, I started writing graffiti in 89, so I would have seen the magazine at earliest, probably 90. I mean, I remember seeing spray can art and uh, subway art, those two books, well before that. There were uh, kids that were into breakdancing and stuff and kids that had visited uh, New York that would write that kind of lettering. And I would get over their shoulder just as a curious artist kid and be like, hey, man, where'd you learn how to do that lettering? That's cool. you know. And they'd be like, oh, this is like... So it's like after what they do on the subway trains in New York. And I was like, what? And they'd show me this book. Blew my mind. But then it wasn't until years later that I got into it myself. You know? So like 90s graffiti in, in San Francisco was a, a lot of people in a heavy scene. Is there anything that sticks out from you about that time? That well, you- I mean, it was... It was cool because people were coming from all over the country to go to art school and just to be there. Um, So we kind of had some of the best writers from different places. And there was a lot of really distinctive different styles. And I think that if you're a student of graffiti writing, that was a great place to be at the time, you know, because there was minimal stuff like uh, KR, where he's pretty much just writing KR everywhere in just tags and um, real simple letters and throw-ups. Twist was kind of just another step up from that, um, where he was basically still just using a black and a white or a black and a silver, but he was doing hypodermic needles and dudes in suits with their dicks out and all kinds of just wacky shit, you know? Um, And then it just kind of escalated up to there where, you know, we had people like uh, a guy that wrote Bless, B-L-E-S. He did full crazy lots and lots of colors huge pieces of his name in places where people were just catching tags and doing throw-ups only spending five minutes and he would be there for hours and hours and we just couldn't figure out how the fuck he was pulling that off was there something about the geography topology or the legal situation in or architecture in sf that made it work as a graffiti city particularly yeah absolutely after the uh, the earthquake was at eighty nine, um, remember during the World Series? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the so a lot of buildings had to get, yeah, a lot of buildings had to get torn down. So they tore them down, and then they'd leave the uh, foundation structure open, and it usually went down a story or two below the sidewalk level. So all over town, you had these abandoned basement structures, basically that had no ceiling. We called them pits. They were everywhere all over town and those were places where we would go paint many of them had uh fences around the building site so people wouldn't fall off the sidewalk obviously into a pit and they'd put those metal slats in it so if you kind of got up close you could see through and see what was in there but if you were just casually walking by on the street you might not even realize that there were you know four or five guys in the pit right then and they're just really doing masterpieces I've we would be that- able to paint those on sundays and you know, during the day, it was crazy. There were just so many. I've it was heard really a, fun. An interesting story about the flip side of that, which was like all the builders 
who came in to build and rebuild a lot of those neighborhoods were crews of gay guys would get together and be like, we will build up the houses and then they would rent out houses. And so like the neighborhoods, they would be brand new when they were built or renovated. Well, that's just and, it. And when they colonized the pits, that yeah. was because the dot-com boom of 2000 was really noticeable for us that we're living there. They filled in them pits. Yeah, one after the other. There might only be three or four left now. I can think of one at uh, California and, oh, shit, I can't even think of what it's uh, I'm sorry, Kearney, maybe. <laughs> There's one right there. But then I, was just, I was there because I was just there, and right. I remember climbing up the wall, and I painted that spot so many times, and I was like, damn, you can still hit this spot? This is great. It's like right in the financial district. It's such a good spot, you know? It's funny. <laughs> so how long were you there? I was there basically from 93 to 03. And okay. then so I was back time. in Albuquerque from 03 to 08. So 93 and then to I went 03. back to San Francisco from 08 to 13. But 93 to 03 in SF was like where you became known right that's, basically as that, an that's, artist. those were the formative years yeah, yeah. absolutely so uh, yeah. so you're working at think you're doing pieces were there any mm-hmm. other big leaps that happened in there that um moments I, you know frankly i wouldn't i wouldn't really say so no those were my big focuses at the time you know and i, I was a raver and I've always been into the live music and stuff too. So there's like lots of outlets. Right. And I love cycling and skateboarding. So those things are just kind of a constant. I guess things really started to change once I left Think. I moved to England for a little while. And then I came back to San Francisco and worked in an adult bookstore. And then I uh, got a job with a friend doing Photoshop work. And then I started tattooing. And when did you start tattooing? That was uh, 98. Hmm. I started it just at home and then worked at a shop in New York in 99. And then I was in San Jose for a while. And then I got a shop job finally in San Francisco. And then I opened a shop later in Albuquerque. We didn't really touch on your collage work, which is way different than everything else. Mm -hmm. What, What attracted you to that? What's that all about? Well, I think collage is just kind of a, an extension of how I see things and how I just kind of lump all these things together like you're saying with the the graphics from different eras just kind of being thrown together on one level I'm a collector so I'm, I'm always looking for visual stimulus you know like pre-tumblr I was clipping pictures out of magazines and putting them in these big black books I still have them you know these yeah. like inspiration books or I forget what fashion people call those books that they keep but um board yeah yeah it? right yeah. that kind of thing yeah <laughs> so it's like I've, I've always been just trying to hold on to those things and collage is just kind of the next level way to put those things together and also kind of force them to be a bit more special mm. but just because they're not just stuck in a, in a book somewhere, you know? It's just it's like graphic design practice, too. I've grown up reading magazines and whatnot, and the, it's fun, you know? I enjoy layout and playing with that kind of thing and seeing how different images next to each other, what kind of story they tell. Um, sure. And I love the craft of cutting things out, too, for sure. I miss cutting Ruby Lith, to be honest, cutting out uh, the colors for the silkscreen. 
stuff yeah. for skateboards. Yeah. Used to yeah, cut I did that all day, every day for years. For yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm good at that shit. And it's just like such a dead, like, who the fuck? I mean, I have Ruby Lith and people will come into the studio and be like, what's this red stuff, dude? Is this for your like car windows or some shit? That'd be cool. I'm like, no, 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 no. That's for smoke screening. That's for cutting colors, man. And I show them and they're like, oh shit, that's fresh. It peels off. Cool. It seems like <laughs> it seems like there's probably a process that requires Ruby Lith that you could do, like a painting cutting process. Oh, you know, you sure. Do, I mean, and then I you have would, a you know I have an automatic press in the studio. I mean, I could certainly cut colors and burn screens right from those. I think it's just like a film photography. If you have the equipment around and the chemicals, like, yeah, you could still do it old school. Do you really want to? It's or, a total tangent. Because you know. I know like there's a bunch of things I used to do which would like require actual chemical photography and you get unique effects yeah. you can't get with digital. And I was wondering, sure. like, Ruby Lith seems like a, a material that somebody's going to come along and be like, all right, I got, like, a egg, I got a cheese grater, and I got, like, this exacto knife, and I made this painting on Ruby at Lith and then printed yeah. it. Like, it only works with Ruby Lith. But whatever. Anyway, yeah. that's not yeah, about yeah. you. The interview's about you. Nah, that's <laughs> um, <all good. laughs> are you, like, full-time? Like, you just make clothes right now? Like, is that what you're doing? Or are you uh, tattooing well, too? No, like actually, I was working for Rebel 8 for years. That was my main gig. And I left them last year. So I'm not working so much in fashion and streetwear these days. Um, I'll do occasional freelance work. But I've been more doing, like, poster releases, uh, fine art, and occasionally tattoos. Trying to think what other ways I make money these days. I mean, those are the, those are the main things. Tattooing is just like the hardest thing I know how to do that doesn't pay the most anymore. You know, so it's just like, well, fuck, how much do I want to put into that? I mean, it's it's mad stressful. I mean, I, I joke with friends when they ask me if I'll do a tattoo. I'm like, well, fuck, I'd rather mow your lawn. I mean, can I mow your lawn? You know, I mean, I, I'd enjoy that. I'd love to do that for you. I'll clip it up real nice, you know, but to make a tattoo on you, fuck, dude, I got to get out all this stuff and it scares the shit out of me every time. And, uh, you know, again, it's kind of like the graffiti thing where, you know, you set a goal in mind and you work towards that goal. And then once you achieve it, it's like, okay, now it's starting to hurt my body. <laughs> do I continue to do this or do I move on to something else? And for me, working with Sharpies on paper is intensely easier than putting ink into people's skin. And at this point, I've worked it out so that it pays the bills fine. I'm not a wealthy person by any means, but I keep my expenses low so I don't have to stress on that shit. So it's all good. And when I do make a tattoo, it's really special. It's like, I feel like the people that get them really know, like, wow, dude, thanks. Because I know you ain't doing this shit. And I know you probably didn't enjoy that just now. <laughs> but I'll do nice it. Yeah. yeah, and that's just it. And and also, because I don't do it professionally, the money part of it is is a second thing. I don't even have to worry about that. You know, whatever they give me is fine. yeah. Tattooing, it's a bitch. I still like getting tattooed, though. I still love being a tattooed person. I still love that spark in someone's eye when they get their first one and they fucking get it. And they're like, dude, I can't wait to get more. I'm like, yeah, get some. (laughs) And it's really encouraging to see uh, women tattooing more and more and more because I think that that was a real shame and continues to kind of be a shame that there's not more 
women tattooing. I mean, there's certainly just as many, if not more women getting tattooed these days, yeah. you know, so that, and that's fucking neat too. I wouldn't have expected any of that. You know, I used to draw heavily tattooed women because I didn't really see them around and I would fantasize about, all right, what would this hottie look like with a web on her face? And now sure enough, for better or worse, they're doing it, you know? <laughs> I don't know. It trips me out. It's cool. It's neat to see how it's gotten accepted in the way it has. Yeah, I, I remember when I started out, like I would do these paintings of people I knew because, like, I felt like I wasn't seeing the kinds of people that I knew represented in images, you know, ever. Like there they were every day, yeah. but then they weren't in images. And now it's like yeah. I don't have to do that job anymore. Because right. like you can see all kinds of people, and now it's kind of like yeah. that you're talking about something different. Yeah, yeah. Things have changed, for sure. Things that I never thought would have got commodified by popular culture have. You know, yeah. even the acceptance of uh, cannabis culture in America is uh, something I would have never uh, expected as someone who's been using for most of my life, you know, and having to be a, a criminal, basically, on a daily basis. And now not, that's dope. I would have never, never seen Literally. that. Literally. Yeah, yeah, straight up. It's dope, bro. All right. Yeah. We got so much out of you. Although, okay, That's I'm right. worried that we have some great cop skating graffiti story from San Francisco that we just completely could have gotten that we didn't. Like, I don't know. You woke up in That's bed and it turned out to be a cop's podcast. mom, and there was gelatin yeah. in the kitchen, and you had to run through the jello to get home. Sure. If there's one that's on I've your mind, I've had to run through people's houses. <laughs> give us one. Really? Give us at least yeah. one, so we don't feel like I'll we tell lost you that it. one because that one's pretty straightforward. All right. When I lived in London, let's see, I was there. That was '98, and a friend of mine had us a, a nice. Uh, it was like a utility building along the trackside, and I was really into doing the tracksides. I like to see my name as I went by on the train. This particular trackside was part of the channel system, which was brand new then, the train that goes from Paris to London. Yeah. So it was under heavy, heavy, heavy security. We got by it. We painted the spot. I even did a little character and some background. We took our time. We made it look really nice. I was with a guy that wrote Sir, S-E-R. Yeah, I hope his son hears this interview, actually, because his son thinks this is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> this actually happened, bro. <laughs> so again, the photo was important and it was still film photography days. So I had to go back to the spot the next morning as early as I could to try to get the photos. Thing was, the spot was halfway between two stations. So I had to go off the uh, end of the platform and uh, just walk down the train line on a really high security line to get the photo. So I go down and I must have tripped something pretty quickly and guys with orange vests started coming up behind me and I was still pretty far from where I needed to go. So I kind of trotted up to the spot and snapped off as many uh, photographs as I could and then started cruising up the track um, away from these guys. Well, sure enough, another group of guys in the same vest car coming from the other direction and I realized I was stuck. I was cornered. I didn't really feel like crossing the tracks because the trains were live. It was, mm. was kind of hectic. So I decided just to jump a fence. <coughs> I ran through a backyard. There was a back door open. I ran in the back door. There was a woman in the kitchen doing something and I just said, sorry. <laughs> and I ran through 
and there was some kids watching TV on the floor in the living room. And I was just like, sorry, guys, sorry, my bad. And I opened up the front door and I ran out. And there was a bunch of kids on the street playing soccer. And I was like, where's the subway station? Where's the subway? And they all pointed and laughed. And as I'm running away, I'm turning my jacket around and I ran to the subway and I got in and I'm sitting there and I'm just waiting for that train and just hoping that I, nobody would come, you know, and nobody did. And I got on the subway and I took off and I got away, but I literally had to run to that family's house to get through it. Nice. Must have been pretty crazy, man. <laughs> I'm a big dude. That yeah, you're was, six that four. Was that was pretty thrilling. Yeah, that was pretty <laughs> thrilling too. I, I wonder what the train guys were thinking. Like, holy shit, he jumped the fence. <laughs> there he goes. Yeah. But again, like that was awesome, but I've been in so many chases and stuff like that where it was way crazier. That was just like a funny one, but one of my favorites for sure. And just running through the house. That actually happened. Nice. There you go. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Mike has been yeah. there and done that, kids. <laughs> I have. I have. I've got the photographs to prove it. Phil. Right. Yeah. No Photoshop, bitches. Dates on the back. <laughs> thank you very much Mike uh, thank you for having me thank really you so much it. these are great opportunities for me to just to kind of say what, what's going on you know that's <laughs> right thanks for listening to this episode of Weed Art check out our guest Mike Giant's latest work on the new Rubedo album which is available now wherever you get music that has cover art included he'll also be in a group show with Morning Breath starting February 10th at the Volcom Garden in Austin, Texas also John has I'm almost done with my book called The Puerto Rican War it's a graphic novel made all on woodcut about the failed revolution in Puerto Rico in 1950 how they tried to kill President Truman how they tried to overthrow some towns, the results, and the state of Puerto Rico. All made in enough woodcuts that it took me years and gave me arthritis. I'll have more details for you soon, and I'm excited. Thanks. If you want to see images of some of the artists that we reference, you should check out our Instagram page or our Facebook page at Weed Art. You can support this podcast by liking us on Facebook and Twitter at Weed Art. You can also rate us on iTunes. Please subscribe or tell a friend. We also have a Patreon set up. We have goodies available for donors like stickers, zines, and exclusive episodes. Please consider helping us with whatever you can. Then you will be one of our supporters at patreon.com backslash Weed Art. All one word. Weed Art is produced by Paping and Mnemonic Recordings. The engineer, sound producer, and editor is Justin Asher. First of all, nobody ever, 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 nobody comes in the house, ever, straight up. Sorry, guys, sorry, my bad. Mnemonic Record.